for Thursday, December 26th. I'm Randy Coure, and this is another edition of What's Up the Sports Podcast. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. Uh, reminder again, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter at What's Up Podcast. That's with one P. So uh, it's been a while since we put an episode together. The last episode was November 16th as contributor Tony Antonio and myself discussed our immediate thoughts to the firing of Don Cherry. Well, uh, I've come to learn something about being the host of a podcast, and there's a lot of twists and turns along the road when you hope to go a straight line. And what I mean by that was that I had a busy schedule, which included traveling to Washington, D.C. for work and made a lot of connections. Everything went very well. I have to say, one success I did have was getting the bar to change the channel to the Raptor game, even though the Wizards were playing that night. So, hey, score one for the Canadian. But uh, also, I had every intention to post this episode on December 6th, but I had a malfunction with my recording software. So, not only was I going to miss my deadline, my interview source had to help me re-record the same interview. So, I thank him so very much and lesson learned be sure my recording settings are correct before I start my interview. Uh, thank you so much uh, to uh, my guest. I'll uh, be introducing uh, him in a couple of moments. So as of today, we are days away from the end of 2019, and we are closing out on one successful decade of sports in this country. I mean, from hosting Olympics to all-star games to the crowning of best players in their respective leagues, to playoff appearances and championships fell felt across the country. Canada is developing one rich sporting tradition and look no further than the global and beautiful game of soccer. It's been since 2007 since Toronto FC started its journey into MLS, which, of course, the Vancouver Whitecaps and Montreal Impact followed suit in 2009 and 2012. But a new initiative started this past spring, and that being the uh, true face of soccer in this country, that being the Canadian Premier League. Seven teams started from across the country, with uh, Forge FC from Hamilton winning the inaugural season. So initially, the plan was to do an entire feature of the Canadian Premier League, but lo and behold, Toronto FC uh, makes another appearance to MLS Cup, and coupled with the events of our national program, I decided to do an entire feature of soccer in Canada. Without further ado, I uh, introduce to you my hero uh, for this particular episode, Michael Leach. He is a contributor to uh, onesoccer.ca, talking a little soccer right here on What's Up, the Sports Podcast. So as I mentioned, it was a great year of sports in this country. The Lou Marsh Award was handed out a couple weeks ago honoring uh, top Canadian athlete. And to nobody's surprise, Bianca Andreescu winning top athlete in unanimous fashion with the likes of golfer Brooke Henderson and goaltender Jordan Bennington of the St. Louis Blues getting consideration as well. But there were also some great moments on the soccer pitch in 2019. Toronto FC making quite a run, appearing in their third MLS Cup final. A new domestic league kicked off in this country and some pretty cool moments for our national program. Here to chat a little footy, we have contributor to OneSoccer.ca, Michael Leach in the house. Mike, thanks so much for joining me today. Well, thanks very much for having me. Mike, uh, you know, it was uh, quite a year. We'll start with uh, MLS if we can. And, you know, it was definitely uh, a year to uh, remember and a very surprising year uh, for all things positive for Toronto FC, making it to MLS Cup and uh, just, uh, you know, they did come up short. But, you know, what's making MLS Cup without facing the Seattle Sounders, this time in their barn in Seattle? Uh, Just a very general question to start. uh, How did you think... Toronto FC uh, and just this, uh, the year that was uh, in MLS, uh, starting with uh, TFC? Well, I mean, you made it to MLS Cup Final, and that's pretty good. Uh, obviously, you would have preferred 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you go on a huge unbeaten streak and only to uh, have it end at MLS Cup. I mean, it's uh, just uh, uh, goes without and saying. Should have won. Well, I mean, uh, you know, uh, well, uh, tell tell me about that because you know you probably uh, know the intricacies a lot more than me. Uh, you know, the first half, uh, it just seemed that that first goal uh, that Seattle scored really was. Um, uh, all that uh, they really needed. Of course, they did win 3-1, but uh, it seemed that a lot of momentum uh, uh, was taken out of that uh, after that first goal. Uh, how, how did you uh, translate that MLS Cup? Okay. They dominated possession in the first half and in the first portion of the second half as well, but they couldn't finish. Uh, you, know, you know, credit to Seattle. Seattle did an, a tremendous job of Defending its box and, and, you know, keeping TFC really to the perimeter, um, but TFC did own the possession, and then you have a bad, you know, a really bad bounce at a bad time, you give up the own goal, and all of a sudden you're chasing the game, and then one turns into two, and then all of a sudden, once it once it got to 2-0, and it was, it was pretty much done because, you know, you were going to open yourself up at the back for more bad things to happen. They gave up the third goal. They did get on the scoreboard. Josie Altador scoring in second half stoppage time really kind of a you know, too little, too late. A day late and a dollar short. Yep. Add another cliche there, I guess. <laughs> um, kind of goal. But, um, you know, for a good 60 minutes of that game, TFC looked like they were in control. Could at any point have taken the lead. Had they taken the lead in that game, I think they win. Uh, but they didn't do that, and you know that's the way it goes. And they played three MLS Cup finals against Seattle, one that they were absolutely dominant in and won it going away. The other two, they probably should have won both games, but didn't. And you know that's uh, the unfortunate thing about sports is you can have a, a better performance but not get the result. Yeah, and uh, you know, I I don't know about yourself personally. I had the uh, privilege of going to both MLS Cups here in Toronto, and uh, you know the the domination that uh, Toronto did have. Of course, Seattle won their first MLS Cup without a registered shot on goal, 
and of course the first MLS Cup went into penalties. But you know that second uh, MLS Cup in 2017, where they were so much more dominant, and uh, Toronto was, and the fact that they didn't score until I think it was 66 minute. Uh, up until then, uh, I think a lot of fans were on pins and needles. But uh, but I digress. You know, as you were saying about how great they were in the 2019 MLS Cup, the long winning streak that they had. Uh, TFC did have decisions to make in terms of key signings. They did uh, re-sign Michael Bradley. Was this a move that the club had to do? I don't know that they had to do it. Uh, but I think it is better for the club that they did. Uh, Michael Bradley, easily the most influential piece of the, the or cornerstone to the, the change, the 180 degree change in culture at this club. You know, when you know the season before, the two seasons before he arrived in 2012 and 2013 were two of the, you know, statistically, just in terms of the feelings around the club, two of the worst teams in that, or seasons in MLS history. Uh, Danny Kuberman famously said that TFC, after getting out to an 0-9 start, I think in 2012, said that they were the worst team in the world. Mm-hmm. I actually have a, I have actually uh, an autographed, Kuverman's jersey that I won uh, at a uh, TFC pub, call, pub crawl, excuse me. Uh, but I digress. Uh, you, you, <laughs> uh, sorry, uh, to uh, to your point, were you? Uh... Well, I mean, he, he comes in as a part of the bloody big deal, and he was obviously an overshadowed part of that in comparison to Jermaine Defoe. But the feeling I had at the time was that he was going to have, you know, Bradley. That is, was going to have a much bigger impact on this club at than. Defoe would, and it, it's, you know, Defoe stayed for a year, um, obviously went back to England, and, and, you know, with TFC, with Bradley as the captain, as the, the leader in all facets of the club, you know, in terms of, of the players that the club built, you know, through 2015, made the playoffs for the first time. Got boat raced in, in the first round there at Montreal, but they needed to go through that to get to 2016. And 2016, they make the final. They go through the heartbreak of losing the penalty shootout after not, not conceding a shot on goal, as you, you had mentioned. Michael Bradley talked about in, in the you know in the hours after that that loss, himself and a group of players got together and an obsession was formed that they weren't going to allow that to happen again in 2017. And 2017, they arguably put together, I I still believe it is, the the greatest season in MLS history. I know that points record went down the following year uh, to New York Red Bulls, but Red Bulls didn't end up winning MLS Cup. Right. They also hadn't won. I know U.S. Open Cup is a lot harder to win than Canadian Championship, but they didn't have they didn't have that you know in their in their trophy case as well. I mean, TFC twenty seventeen only team in MLS history to win the domestic trouble. Uh, Atlanta won MLS Cup. They had a tremendous season in twenty eighteen, but they didn't win the Supporters Shield. LAFC had a tremendous season, you know, statistically in in twenty nineteen, but when it when the lights really turned on in the playoffs, they ended up folding to Seattle in, in the Western Conference Final. Only one team has been able to put it together from start to finish, and that was TFC uh, in 2017. So they did have the hiccup, the blip, as they like to call it, in 2018. Of course, they had put so much focus on the, the CONCACAF Champions League that year, but by, by the time they came out of Guadalajara at the end of the Champions League in late April, the team was decimated by injuries. And I think so much of the mentality of that season was focused on winning that tournament that it was almost like season over at that point. 
in you know in at the end of April, uh, and they just never recovered in yeah. terms of the regular season. This year, obviously, they they struggled early, or, you know, at points in the first half of the season, and there are a variety of reasons for that scheduling. They they play a, a weekend game in 35 degree heat in Orlando, and then on a Wednesday night, four days later, play on turf in. Atlanta, and then you know, travel to Salt Lake City a week later. Like that, that schedule. People, fans, don't think about how much that kind of travel and playing in all of those different kinds of conditions. What kind of toll that takes on the body? It's, it's massive. Oh sure. Um, and- but they, they were you know they brought in Erickson Gallardo, who, who didn't really feature a whole lot this season. Uh, certainly, Nicholas Benazé had an impact at times, uh, certainly scored a, a massive goal in the Eastern Conference Final against Atlanta, and, and to me, the biggest piece of the puzzle that they brought in that really changed their fortunes was Omar Gonzalez, and he came in after the Gold Cup, and all of a sudden, that team went from conceding almost two goals a game to conceding just over one, and that's, you know, the difference between one and two doesn't sound like a lot. Yeah, and I mean, with uh, the credibility that Gonzalez had, uh, you know, it goes without saying, especially with his time in L.A. And uh, the reality is that, uh, you know, you brought a good point in terms of iconic championship teams. And when you bring up uh, Red Bulls and Atlanta and so on, I mean, you know, you could think of uh, the Seattle Mariners when I think in 2001 they had the most wins in a season and uh, they didn't win the World Series. Uh, Golden State Warriors, uh won 73 games they did not win the nba championship and it doesn't really matter what at the end of the day what you do in the regular season it is uh what you do if you could win that final game in uh in the playoffs uh it goes uh, absolutely so uh 2007 new england Patriots. hey that just like that and you know it was they were leading in that game and uh it was just one final touch of course the uh, the incredible catch by david tyree and uh, they, I don't know how many times they were in deficit that year, but they were leading up to uh, the final seconds when Plaxico Burris caught the uh, caught that touchdown. So, you know, we uh, definitely want to uh, talk about uh, the other Canadian uh, teams uh, within MLS. Uh, Montreal making a big splash, of course, in the beginning of the year, winning the uh, Canadian Championship, and now they have a new coach in. Uh, World Cup uh, champion and French international uh, Thierry Henry. Uh, what does a guy like Henry bring to the MLS game? Uh, obviously, his, uh, you know, you think about uh, soccer uh, to the average fan, they know about Thierry Henry, but, uh, you know, uh, can he translate uh, success into success at MLS? Well, first off, I mean, Montreal did have the Canadian Championship, but realistically, this season was a disaster in Montreal. Uh, I, the expectation that I had for them going into the season with some of the, the firepower they had, particularly up front, was that they, they should have at least made the MLS Cup playoffs, and they did not. They, and, they, and they were... They were up around the top of the Eastern Conference table, you know, into the early portion of the summer, and just slowly faded throughout the remainder of the season. Remy Guard got sacked. Wilmer Cabrera came in, had little impact, although he did. It, you know, he was the, the 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 manager of record when they won the Canadian Championship. And now you go with the Thierry Henry experiment, and I'm not really sure what to expect from this. Um, I, he, he lacks experience. I mean, yes, he, he coached at Monaco, but it was a grand total of, I think, 10 or 12 games, and those 10 or 12 games didn't go particularly well. I'm not sure how this is going to go, and, and you know, the, the history of great players turning into great managers um, is kind of few and far between. 
It'll be very interesting to see how this uh, experiment, experiment goes. Of course, I think one thing that is that does bode well is, you know, for the impact and for Henri is that he is French, he's francophone. I think he'll fit into the city there and the culture there fairly well. Um, but in terms of, you know, the results on the pitch for the impact, it's going to be a very, very interesting season in 2020 because it is imperative that that team get back to the playoffs because if they don't, I think they're going to struggle increasingly with their fan base. Well, and, and to that, before before you continue, I, I was going to ask, like, does a coach draw attention to the point where uh, the average fan will pick up a pair of tickets and uh, go check. Would Montreal Impact fans uh, and the support, what you could say it uh, it has uh, wavered here and there. Uh, I did go to the uh, TFC game uh, this past summer in Montreal. It was a fantastic atmosphere. But apparently they do have uh, trouble with uh, selling seats. Does a guy like Henri bring immediate credibility maybe very temporarily um, you know in the short term sure you might go to see for the novelty factor but the reality is winning matters it's the results that count and you know as much as, for as much as fans blame coaches when things don't go well not the coach that is on the field. Um, you know, the coaches can only impact in as far as they set up the team and they, you know, they devise the tactics and that sort of thing. But the players have to go out and execute. And if they don't do that, or you don't have players who are good enough to get you the results that you need, it doesn't matter who you have coaching. Yeah. No. I and. Uh... Because, I mean, hey, Gretzky was a coach. I mean, it was in a uh, a non-hockey market like Phoenix, and maybe it garnered a little bit of attention in the first little while. But as you said, uh, first couple games, uh, you know, you might get a, a little bump in uh, support, but obviously it uh, takes to uh, what happens on the pitch. And Montreal, as you said, uh, it's a really important season for them in 2020. Uh, you know, with uh, with all things uh, being equal in Vancouver, I don't know if you have any uh, thoughts towards the Whitecaps. It was a very difficult season for them, uh, finishing at the bottom of the table. Uh, what for the kind? Whitecaps, for the Whitecaps, they were probably, of the three Canadian MLS teams, they were the ones that probably met expectations the most of the three. I think Montreal underachieved. And I think TFC, TFC exceeded expectations. I didn't think at any point, up until probably TFC played away at LAFC with about two or three weeks left in the regular season. At no point until that, that game did I think that TFC was an MLS Cup contender. I thought they were good enough to be you know, Eastern Conference semifinals and maybe if everything fell right, Eastern Conference Final. I didn't see them getting to the MLS Cup Final. But that LAFC game was, was where they sort of turned my head and made me go, eh, they're maybe better than what I thought they were. But Vancouver, they, you know, Marcos Santos, they cleaned house at the end of 2018. There was a lot of malcontent. Their 2018 end-of-season availability was a circus. And that's probably putting it mildly. Um, so they cleaned house. A lot of young players uh, moving into that team. Mark Dos Santos is a coach in the first year. I thought he did, a, you know, a fairly decent job, but he just didn't have didn't have the tools at the ready. I think there's potential with that team, but they just weren't good enough this year, and the results kind of that out so uh before we uh move on to uh other things i just uh wanted to get your thoughts on where toronto vancouver montreal what their footprint is throughout the entire country now we've only had uh 
three experiences of Canadian teams making MLS Cup. Of course, all three of them were Toronto FC. Uh, Toronto FC made a uh, CONCACAF Champions League final. However, what do you think in terms of the national scope? Now, obviously, we saw a huge uh, following with the Toronto Raptors when they uh, went to the NBA Finals and won the championship. Even with the Toronto Blue Jays a couple years back when they uh, made their way to the ALCS, uh, they didn't make it to the World Series, but everybody sensed uh, that Canadians across the country were supporting the Blue Jays, the Raptors. What do you think? Now we could only uh, we only have evidence from Toronto, but in terms of the rest of the country, in terms of the soccer, uh, uh, the the clubs that do have uh, soccer beyond MLS in this country, how do you think the response would be if when a Canadian team makes a tournament final like MLS MLS Cup? Minimal. Um, in terms of national footprint, it's, it's minimal because, I mean, you do have three teams in three different regions uh, operating two different languages. But, uh, you know, outside of cities that those teams reside in, I don't, I don't see there being a ton of support for any of the clubs to be to be quite honest with you, and I think the television ratings bear that out. And the, the, the big thing with MLS and, and, and the big argument is that the, the you know the TV ratings are poor. Well, TV ratings are poor because you have a TFC versus Sporting Kansas City game. You're really only drawing viewers in Toronto. You're not drawing anything outside of Toronto. You might get you know some Montreal fans or Vancouver fans, you know, a smattering of them who will watch. You know, certainly in Montreal's case, you know, in hopes that TFC loses. I don't know whether Vancouver even really cares that much about TFC. I think their bigger rivals are down the I-5 in, in Seattle and Portland. But in places like Calgary, Regina, Moose Jaw, you know, Flin Flon, Manitoba, <laughs> even Thunder Bay, Ontario, like they don't they don't follow MLS. They don't. They don't care about it. They're more likely to, if they are soccer fans, they're more likely to have a stronger connection to a European club than they are to a Canadian-based MLS club. And, and, like, that's, and I think that's okay. I don't think it needs to be a huge national brand. The one thing with, with football, with soccer, you know, be it in Europe or, or wherever, you have the, the local connection to your local club is so, so critical. It's bigger than maybe even in a lot of other sports. It's like if you grow up, if you grow up in a place like Rochdale, England, you'll follow Rochdale. That will be your club. Even though it's not a Premier League, not a Premier League club, that's the club that you go to on Saturdays and Sundays to watch play. And you support them week after week because you always have and you always will. You might have a Premier League club that you support, but Rochdale is your first love. Um, I think maybe some of the, the the same thing, you know, might exist here, is that you might have people support soccer locally, or they may have a European side that they follow. But in terms of a big city club like Toronto, I don't think the interest is there. You know, the ratings the ratings boost for games like MLS Cup where they're you know, drawing a million-ish fans watching on TSN, I would probably suggest that a good 80% of those viewers are in the greater Toronto area. Sure. They're not, they're not watching in Winnipeg. Sure. Yeah, perhaps. Uh, so, uh, Mike, uh, we move from the top division of North America, that is MLS, to a new program that launched in the springtime. That was the Canadian Premier League. Uh, seven teams kicked off from coast to coast, two of which are from Ontario. Uh, Forge FC at a Hamilton winning the inaugural season. Mike, uh, your thoughts on how the first campaign of CPL played out? talking about the tiers and the divisions, 
Canada, MLS is not top flight in Canada. It's, it's not Division One in Canada. It, it is the the top domestic league, top tier domestic league of the United States, and it just happens to have three Canadian-based teams. And I think that's very, very important to remember. Um, and and the mandate of the Canadian Premier League, much like MLS, is foster growth of the game throughout the country from coast to coast as well as developing players to, to move into the national team pool and we've seen uh, you know a couple of CPL players Dominic Zator and Marco Carducci Zator a defender Carducci a goalkeeper uh, move into the uh, also, Amir Didich with FC Edmonton moving into the Canadian men's national team pool. None of the, you know, none of those players saw any minutes in in meaningful game action. But getting into the camps is critical, and it's a big step for the CPL. Um, obviously, you know, my thought on the CPL in the first season of the CPL are, you know, listen, it wasn't without its. The first season wasn't without its bumps. It wasn't without its hiccups. Uh, but in terms of the actual soccer, I thought the level of play was actually really hot. And we saw through the Canadian Championship with York 9 FC taking Montreal to the wall and then Montreal being put under a serious test by, by Cavalry FC and Cavalry having already put out the Vancouver Whitecaps at that point, I think is a definite sign that the caliber and level of play in the CPL is pretty good. Um, and it's certainly worth taking a look at. The games are entertaining for the most part. And, uh, Mike, if I could ask uh, uh, quickly... Uh, do, uh, I think everybody involved with CPL should be really proud of and uh, but to that and uh, to add to uh, add to what your uh, your your uh, train of thought there, like did you think that in terms of the uh, Canadian Championship so on uh, that C- uh, CPL would contend and uh, challenge uh, the Montreal's and the Vancouver's the way that they did in their inaugural season? So that's a really good question because a there were two very there was a very distinct class in CPL with Forge FC who won the CPL title and uh, Cavalry FC who won the spring and fall seasons. Right. And then the rest. You had New York 9 FC finishing third at distant third and then you know, you know uh, the other teams slotting in, in behind. Did I think they could be competitive? Probably. I thought they could be competitive. But I didn't think they could win. I, did, I didn't think that, you know, and I'll, I'll tell you, I was pitch side uh, for the first game ever featured featuring a CPL team versus um, an MLS team, and that was at York Lions Stadium. York 9 actually took a lead probably about five minutes to go before full time. And if not for a a Nathan Ingham brain gas um, conceding a a silly late penalty, Brook Nine probably wins that game. And even even after conceding the the equalizing goal in second half stoppage time, I think Ryan Telfer hit the crossbar um, and they, they, they had a chance to win that game. Then Cavalry FC pulling off the stunning upset at BC Place. I mean, did I see that? You know, certainly once they got to that game at BC Place, yeah, I could I could. It, it wasn't inconceivable to me that Cavalry could win that game. But did I think that going into the season that a CPL team would knock out an MLS team in the Canadian Championship? Got to be honest, I didn't. I didn't see that coming. So. You know, I, I went to a, a York Nine game uh, 
in their uh, first season. And I spoke to a, a number of fans, and they seem to really capture and appreciate the local aspect of having a team representing the uh, representing their local uh, community uh, against the rest of the country. You know, you have uh, you know a team from Halifax. You have a team in. Uh, uh, you know, Hamilton, of course, with Forge FC. How important was that to have smaller communities, uh, you know, not major metropolises? I mean, with all due respect to, uh, you know, Hamilton and so on. But, you know, with a York 9, like, is that kind of uh, like what the CPL is trying to get at, a more of a community aspect in this domestic league? I think CPL is taking outside of York, and maybe even Forge to a lesser extent, is taking professional soccer, and in Halifax, in the case of Halifax, professional sports, into markets that are starving for that kind of sporting entertainment. Um, Halifax averaged like 6,500 this year, which is, you know, they were sold out for the season, basically. It, that was a smashing success. Wanderers Ground. You know, they, they played a Canadian championship game, I believe, up against the Memorial Cup, which Halifax was hosting. And this, the, the, the Wanderers game still sold out. I think for me, with the, with the league, that certainly, those markets are part of the story, but also something, you know, a part of the story, a major part of the story, is the emergence of some very, very good soccer players in this country who otherwise would be driving a bus or digging a ditch or becoming an accountant because no professional opportunities would be available to them. I think of guys like Christian Oxner, a goalkeeper in Halifax, local Haligonian boy, uh, was not expected to be the starting goalkeeper for that team. Won the job over Dan Michael Williams, a much more experienced born goalkeeper. I look at, you know, York Nine's um, two fullbacks, uh, the, the, the left-back, uh, Yadin Abzi, from the Montreal area. You know, he's a PDL, professional de- development league player. Came up, really acquitted himself well. You know, developed himself into one of the best left-backs in the league. Right-back, Maury Donor. Uh, another guy, you know, in his early to mid twenties from from Collingwood, Ontario. It's an opportunity to play professional soccer for the first time, and really seize the opportunity, seize the day, and you know, made the CP. I believe he made the CPL's, you know, best eleven um, at his position, or he was certainly in the conversation for it. These are guys I've never heard of before this season, and now they're on my radar, and not only are they on my radar, they're on the radar of, uh, you know, speaking to these players, they're on the radar of USL teams, they're even on the radar of MLS teams. So I think that, that to me, is the biggest success story outside of the entertainment and the attendance and all of that other stuff. The biggest success to me is these players having an opportunity to play a game that they love at a professional level and having you know, that opportunity that didn't exist before. Sure. And, you know, hey, you have more uh, talent, you have more names in the hat. You know, it could only lead to more possibilities for our uh, national side. And, uh, you know, specific to the Canadian Premier League, because MLS is what MLS is, but... My personal thinking is that CPL is so incredibly crucial towards the success of the men's national team. You have more uh, people, more kids who are getting into the game, developing their game more. It can only lead to uh, so many more uh, uh, possibilities towards our national side. Specific to CPL, how crucial is... Uh, before, that... you this, before you hit this question, that is a great point. It is an absolutely critical point. 
in that having a strong and healthy domestic league is paramount to the success of your national team. And a lot of people in this country don't get this, but it is absolutely true. You look at the countries that consistently appear at World Cups, they are countries that have strong, thriving domestic leagues. Every single one of them. You look at countries like Japan, Denmark, some of these countries, Australia, yeah, some of them qualify in some, you know, what would be considered easier confederations. You know, CONCACAF, by FIFA standards, is considered an easier confederation as well. But we have been unable to qualify out of CONCACAF since 1986. And it should come as absolutely no surprise to anyone that essentially throughout the vast majority of that time, there has been a complete vacuum in this country in terms of a, a, a thriving professional domestic league. And, and so as far as what the CPL can do at, you know, in the long term for the men's national team, obviously it can't be measured right now, but I believe that it is absolutely critical that we have a, a thriving domestic league if we have any aspirations of consistently showing up at FIFA World Cups, not just, you know, making it in 26 because we happen to host. Uh, Mike, I just want to very quickly talk about the national program, of course, in Canada. Uh, 2019 was uh, quite a year uh, for uh, the Canadian men's side, for the first time in 34 years, they beat the Americans. Uh, it was uh, quite an experience. It wasn't a sold-out experience at BMO Field, but uh, for the first time, and against uh, Michael Bradley, uh, no less, Team Canada did beat the USA. Uh, I, I know that they didn't uh, do well in the uh, second leg, which was in Orlando, and of course this was for CONCACAF Nations League, but... Where does uh, that win rank amongst, uh, you know, uh, the uh, feel-good stories, if you will, for the Canadian men's team? Oh, for me, it's probably up there with 2000 Gold Cup. And I, I you know, talking almost 20 years, um, I remember... I remember them winning that Gold Cup. And I remember what that meant to me. I, my hope and, you know, obviously so much is dependent on what is going to happen with the FIFA rankings and where they sit in CONCACAF with relation to, you know, getting into the top six of CONCACAF or, you know, top six ranking CONCACAF nations because if they can't get into that, it's a nice win, but their road to the World Cup becomes pretty steep. So that loss at Orlando almost overshadows that win a little bit. But to just beat the U.S. for the first time in God knows how long, and what the, the you know the reaction that came out of the U.S. in the in the wake of that game, I think the program is. Stepping, is taking a step forward. I will say, though, there were three huge sort of touchstone matches for the Canadian men's national team this year that you can really look at and go, these are sort of where we're at, Matt. You had the Gold Cup knockout game against Haiti. You have a 2-0 lead at halftime, you end up losing 3-2. That was I don't want to use the word depressing, but that was as crushing a defeat for Canadian soccer as I've seen in a long time. Because the expectation was that they were going to get to the semifinal against Mexico. And it didn't happen. And they lost to, uh, no disrespect to Haiti, Haiti's a very good team, very good players, but looking at Haiti on paper and in comparison to some of the talent that the Canadian national team has, that's not a game that Canada should have lost. 
I think they've kind of figured out how to win and dominate at home. Now they need to figure out how to get results on neutral sites and how to be a lot more competitive when they're on the road and in hostile environments because that environment in Orlando was maybe one-tenth of what you'd get if you were at the Azteca in Mexico or even in Honduras. I mean, that, that stadium in Honduras is barbed wire, razor wire up around the pitch. An intimidating environment to go into. The, the change rooms are less than adequate. The pitch is terrible. What they faced at Orlando, I mean, that stadium a lot of those players have played in. The stadium was half empty. It wasn't exactly a hostile environment, and yet they still went down there and they were humbled. Sure. I think that's, that's definitely, if you're looking at the national team program, I think certainly took a step forward with, with the win over the U.S. at BMO Field. But there are some question marks as they head into 2020. So finally, uh, Mike, I just wanted to end off with a uh, uh, quick question with the uh, women's side as well. Of course, you can't think of Canadian soccer without the uh, without mentioning uh, the women's team. And, uh, you know, there are some question marks if they haven't come up already. Uh, they're going to soon. Of course, uh, Christine Sinclair, she's uh, getting up there. She's uh, still motoring around. But, you know, it is going to come to a point where she is going to have to step aside uh, John Herdman left the uh, women's team for the uh, men's team, and there was some uh, uh, some animosity and some uh, some mixed feelings towards that decision. Uh, where do you see the um, women's team is going forward? Oh, uh, the World Cup was a little bit disappointing. I expected them to go maybe further, although they they did kind of have a tough pathway knockout stages. It's really tough because Christine Sinclair has been such an over, not over, I don't mean to make this sound negative, but she's been such a massive figure for the women's program and really for the Canadian national program in general, both men and women. She's arguably the most recognizable soccer player in this country. Maybe Alfonso Davies is changing that a little bit, but I mean, Sinclair is a national figure. Uh, and as you said, you know, she's a lot closer to the end than she is to the beginning. The next Summer Olympics could be her swan song, and actually probably will be her swan song. I, I don't see her being around for the next World Cup. So obviously there are, this team's going to have to figure out what its identity is going to be. I think there are tremendous young women who are coming up to the program who've been inspired by Sinclair. I think of players like Ashley Lawrence and Kadisha Buchanan. Some of those, you know, young early twenties, there's some, even, you know, players like Janine Becky, you know, who are really, really super young. Just curious to see how they develop together as a team and what the identity of the program is going to be once Sinclair decides to hang up her boots. So I think there are a lot of, as I said, there are a lot of question marks for the men going forward and into the future. I think the men's future is probably a little bit more clear because it seems to be on an upward tra- trajectory. The women, you know, particularly with the competition level coming up throughout the rest of the world, it's going to become harder and harder harder to compete on the international stage and win on the international stage um, as countries like Mexico and you look at the European countries, France, England, Germany, obviously, like those are, those are sort of traditional powerhouses in women's soccer, but you've got even other countries like Spain and Italy starting to step forward in, in women's football. It's going to become a lot harder to sort of maintain a top 10 in the world status um, with the Canadian women's national program. But I I do think there are tremendous young players there, and I think they've been mentored by players, some of the older players like, you know, Christine Sinclair and even players like Sophie Schmidt have been around for, 
know, they're veteran players. Um, I think that's obviously critical to the program going forward. But it, it will be interesting to see. And it, it may not be that the, the talent in Canada steps back in any way. It's, it's the rest of the world is starting to catch up in terms of women's soccer. Once again, my thanks to Mike Leach of OneSoccer.ca for not only his insight, but his patience in doing that interview a second time. Uh, Mike, much appreciated. I really look forward to chatting with you uh, again down the road. So uh, that'll close out this edition of What's Up The Sports podcast, not only for this day, but for this year. I really hope you tune in next time as we are set to do a 2019 year in review show. I'm really Excited to do that, and not only look at not only look back at the last twelve months, excuse me, but we'll examine the last decade and see what ranks as top moments of not only the past year but of the last ten years. So, I hope you and yours have a very happy and healthy holiday season. Happy New Year, and best of luck to you in 2020. I'm Randy Kure, and we'll talk to you next time.